I jokingly tell people that I came to the conclusion my employees were trying to kill me, but it wasn't intentional on their part. Welcome to the Fueling Deals Podcast, the podcast that teaches how to accelerate your business growth through all types of deals. It's time to fuel up, so buckle in with your host, Corey Kupfer. There are only two ways to grow your business. Organically, through sales and marketing, and providing great products and services, and inorganically, through deals. Too many companies focus only on the first way, organic growth. Welcome to the podcast, which will help accelerate your business growth inorganically. My guests are a variety of deal makers and experts on all types of deals who have personal experience that can help you grow, get clear, learn best practices, and avoid mistakes. We discuss everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do without significant capital. My guest today is Mike Finger. Mike is a successful business owner. Over the last 25 years, Mike has bought, built, and sold multiple businesses. Building his first business was a rewarding challenge, but what really captivated him was selling his first business. Now, Mike's got a great quote that I'm going to put in full in the show notes, but I want to read the the beginning part of it. Selling that business was a miracle in my life. It changed everything, but it almost didn't happen. So, Mike, we're going to get into why it didn't happen. But first, really, welcome uh, to the podcast. I love having you on here. Corey, my pleasure to be here. Uh, That's great. So, Mike, before we talk about why that uh, business sale didn't happen and, 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 and what did happen with it and what you're doing now, I want to take you back. So when you were a little kid growing up, what did you want to be? Because my guess is, uh, I don't know, maybe you did want to be a serial entrepreneur and sell businesses, but you know, my guess is that might not have been the case. Uh, that's a great question. It's funny, you know, we we when we look back, we see things that maybe sometimes point to where we ended up more than more than they point to where we thought we would go. I'm I'm reminded of the story of my of, that my dad tells where. He would, uh, he'd head off to work and he would leave chores for my brother and I to do. And uh, he talks about coming home and finding out that I had hired the neighbor kids to do some of the chores that he had left for me. I love it. And he said, um, you know, my dad's an electrician by trade. And he said, you know, I wanted to be angry, but I I knew that I couldn't because technically you had done what I asked you to do. So, (laughs) but you know, there, there was that stream throughout, you know, it was everything from the strawberry stand up on the corner to uh, um, just a general interest. But, you know, I played with the idea of being an architect for a little while. I played with some, some different ideas, but uh, this is, this is where we landed. So Love it. I love it. So you like you like me were or somewhat of a born entrepreneur, which is great. So what what would you consider to be your first real business, however you define that? Um you know the to to be fair, you know, I'd love to tell you the story that it was um you know, I was 12 years old and did something, but the first real business was the first business uh that we started. I was uh 5 years out of college and uh, uh my wife and I decided that, you know, we, we saw a need that we wanted to meet. And so we literally cut our dining room table in half to make two desks and uh, started a business out of our living room. And, uh, you know, up to that, um, I didn't have that, uh, you know, here I've done three of these already or four of this. So everything I was learning at that point, I was learning uh, from scratch and for the first time. And so, uh, you, you know, Again, the the strawberry stand, those sorts of things. But yeah, that was a day here or a day there. 
Um, but that was the we we dove into the deep end um, on day one with that. It wasn't uh, I, I I didn't I didn't uh, wade through the shallow water to get there. <laughs> I love it. And was and was that the business that uh, that quote relates to that you ultimately sold and and uh, uh, you know but almost didn't or was that a different business? No, that was that was that business. And uh, I mean, for us, it was a. Uh, it ended up being about a 15-year journey. Um, started the business, uh, started growing it. I was a, I was a bit of a growth junkie. Uh, you can't see it, but I'm tapping the vein in my arm as I say that. It was <laughs> the next client, a little more revenue, the next employee, and uh, we grew. Uh, subsequently, started a second business, and after about 10 years, uh, had those operations up to 50 full-time employees. Um, it was a uh, it was a lot of fun. It was it was uh, it, it, most of that period. I was absolutely in flow. Uh, you know, I'd I'd get to work. I'd look up. I'd be fourteen hours later, and I'd be discouraged about having to go home. Right. Uh, it it was evenings, weekends. It, it, we were we were uh, riding the ride. Uh, so- so what, what what type of business was it? And then, yeah, talk to us a little bit about, um, uh, you know, you got to this point where you were thinking about selling it and, and you know, that's where the quote comes in. So uh, tell us yep. what kind of business it was. And I'd love to hear uh, what, it, what it was that had you realize that it wasn't uh, potential, that, you know, maybe it wasn't sellable. Yeah. So for us, it was a, uh, uh, the two businesses that we were running together, they were housed together. Um, one provided uh, business management, accounting, and financial support to schools. And the other was a focus on consulting and management support for nonprofits and associations. So we really did everything from uh, receptionist level work up to uh, executive director on the one side, and then a heavy focus on financial management uh, accounting and uh, crisis management on the other side. Uh, so, you know, employed 25, 30 accountants um, between the two, had, you know, professionals in a wide range. And I, it's, it's, a, it's tough to describe because it's an experience that I have since learned is very common for business owners. But I don't want to call it hitting the wall because it wasn't quite that abrupt, but you start going in and the days are less fun than they used to be. Uh, the level of energy that you have diminishes. And for me, I came to the realization that this is not what I wanted to spend the rest of my time doing. I, I jokingly tell people that I came to the conclusion my employees were trying to kill me, but it wasn't intentional on their part, right? I mean, it just... I would joke about scheduling my heart attack, Corey, and there came a point where it didn't feel like a joke. So for me, it felt like it was time to do something different. You know, it's interesting, and you alluded to the fact that that's not uncommon. And I really, you know, it's the classic entrepreneur, founder, startup personality that a lot of us have that, you know, likes uh, building something from nothing and creating, you know, something in in, in a vision they have and all the challenges that comes with that. And then, you know, when it gets to the point where actually the business reaches a level of success and it comes to maintenance and management, that's a different set of skills. And, uh, you know, what I see with a lot of entrepreneurs is that's the point at which either they sell their business or some of them choose to bring in professional management, continue to be owners, but 
but not be actively involved because, you know, they, that's not what they're interested in. Uh, I think you hit the nail right on the head there, Corey. It was that, that recognition um, that I didn't want to be the guy sitting in the corner office, right? I did enough of that to realize these employees are coming back to me to solve problems we solved six months ago. Uh, or 12 months ago, or, you know, we were growing through our solutions or whatever it was. But for me, there became a level of duplication uh, that sparked a level of boredom. The other problem that I had to your, to your, to your point was that I found that we were creating things that were working and then I didn't want to leave them alone. I kept tinkering. I kept um, changing things. And suddenly you found a system that was working uh, was suffering uh, from a, a, a cancer that I created for it. So uh, again, it was that it was that point where I said, "Okay, I'm ready to do something different." And then I had the uh, the nightmare day that I still remember. It was the day where I hung up the phone and I realized that what I created was unsellable. So, so yeah. So why 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 was it unsellable? What was that? You know, when you had that dreaded feeling in your stomach, what was the realization on on why uh, what you had built and why it wasn't sellable? You know, the the what what actually occurred was that we had been approached by a competitor uh, for a potential purchase, and so I quite excitedly put together a little summary statement and some put some of the data together and got it out to them. And the result of that conversation or of that outreach was just silence um, with, a, with a quick note, we're not interested. I followed up that dismissal with a conversation with a couple different business brokers and started to hear echoes from call to call. That was the uh, not enough cash flow, too owner dependent. Um, it, again, nothing that... Um, somebody who's been active in this industry is going to be surprised by, but as a small business owner who, like I said earlier, was learning everything for the first time, it was shocking. It was devastating. I, I can remember sitting under my desk, Corey, not at my desk, but under my desk, ready to sell the thing for a dime, literally a dime if somebody walked through the door just to let me get out. It was a... It, I mean, professionally, but also personally, it was a it was an incredible low point for me because, by all outward standards, we were successful. But for me, all it was was a lousy paying, um, self constructed prison cell. Yeah, I, I I love that, and that's uh, and you're right. It's such a common situation, uh, and uh, so I mean, listen, the, still to this day, right, the far majority of the businesses out there. Are exactly in that place if they ever look to sell. You know, around, uh, it's interesting, uh, you know, I'm very, uh, for a decade, I've been a very active in an entrepreneurs organization. And, you know, around the O, uh, there's this big, you know, I mean, Michael Gerber's um, uh, E-Myth Revisited is like a Bible and the concept of uh, building a business that's the, that you're working on, not in, and having it not be relied upon you is, is like a mantra. Um, but uh, throughout a lot of the business community, that's not. And frankly, even in the EO community and other places that follow that, a lot of people haven't successfully achieved the ability, even though they understand the concept, they actually haven't gotten there where their businesses can run without them and where it's uh, as enterprise value beyond uh, you know their involvement. Absolutely. And Corey, you just described the next three years for me, right? Because I was familiar with the E-Myth. I, we had systems. I thought 
I thought I had what I needed. But the reality is, is that the next three years were about me converting that business from what I had built to something that actually had transferable value, something that a buyer might actually find attractive. And again, like so many things, when you're, when you're learning for the first time, I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, and that's why hitting that wall so hard for me um, is something that still echoes and resonates for me today. I, I can sit here and remember how I felt. And then I can start to feel that way. Just the, the overwhelming sense of um, impending doom. How could I have gotten here? How could I have been so wrong? And, and the thing about it was, is that, Corey, it wasn't that I didn't look for this kind of information. I'll give you a real simple example. I can remember reading the article two or three years before that day I described, where the article told me that my business was going to be worth two times annual revenue. We were doing about $3 million at the time. I figured if I can get this, this sucker to five, I'm out. Because even if I'm at the low end of that one to two times revenue range, that's going to give me enough um, takeoff space to do what I want to do next. And it wasn't until I got to that bad day where I realized revenue had absolutely nothing to do with the value of my business. So I did my homework. And it's, I mean, jumping ahead, it's how I ended up doing and, and feeling about how I feel about this topic now. I think the entire industry does a fairly lousy job of translating this stuff for the average small business owner. I, I 100% agree with you, Mike. And I've seen this in various industries. People come to me, you know, we, we do a bunch in the wealth management space and uh, the industry publications talk about, you know, 2x revenue all the time. And if you speak to anybody, any of the professionals that do valuations in this space, they're never going to do. And, and this is true. I mean, I've seen it in other industries. It's almost, I mean, listen, if you're selling a tiny book of business in some sort of consulting or professional practice, and it's small, sometimes it'll be expressed in a revenue multiple. But the, you know, the bottom line is that no real valuation is ever going to be done on a, on a revenue multiple on any real deal. Because, I mean, just the simple fact that every, every company with the same revenue doesn't have the same profit. Let's start there not to mention a million other factors. So yeah, the, the misinformation out there and the, you know, and the, uh, you know, is, is shocking sometimes. And I get the temptation to give rules of thumb, but uh, it's problematic. Oh, massively problematic. And, and again, I, I, I was approaching the sale of my business sincerely, I thought, and it was about revenue because I had done my homework and that's what the article or articles said. And I was off to the races. Obviously I missed it, right? The, 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 the information is out there. Um, but it's in, from my perspective, it's in an incredibly difficult way to consume. Great. So that, you know, so it's interesting. So you had a journey where you figured out what you really had to do to make that business sellable. And, you know, it's sort of going to tie into what you do now at, at Exit Oasis, right? Because, you know, you, you provide this kind of information and services and strategy and consulting to others. So I want to sort of combine, uh, because I'm sure they're parallel, right? Uh, and I'm sure maybe you've learned some well lessons since then, but certainly the lessons you learned in that first business uh, have influenced how you advise other uh, companies to do it. So why don't you take me through some of the lessons you learned and then, you know, what uh, Exit Oasis uh, does and uh, to help uh, other business owners avoid those uh, challenges and mistakes that you had to go through. Yeah, great. Um, it's a, uh, the goal that, w that we set when we sat down with Exit Oasis is to try to figure out a simple approach to this topic for small business owners. Um, it, it, small business owners 
constantly asked that question, am I going to be able to sell my small business? And my personal experience and and the vast majority of people I talk to, when they reach out to try to get an answer to that question, they get met with complexity, right? I mean, how many people, how many small business owners do you know that get introduced to the topic of selling a business because they actually uh, accept the invitation to spend three hours sitting through an uh, ESOP seminar, Right. I mean, and so that, now that's their introduction to this topic and the odds that they're ever going to do an ESOP are astronomical. Right. So it's it, the engagement in this space. And, and, and for me, when I when I started going through the steps of trying to figure out how did I how would I make the business sellable? Um, they directly relate to where we landed at Exit Oasis. It's down to some really basic questions. Um, are your results desirable? You know, no, no trick there. Is what you have if, with your business and with the life that it creates for you, is it something that I'm going to look at as a buyer and say, I want that? If it's not, the business is almost certainly unsellable. And I, I, I talk to small business owners all the time and that kind of blows their mind. They're like, well, I've got all this stuff. I've, I'm, I, you know, I'm doing this or I'm doing that. Yeah, but you're working 18 hours a day for 20 grand a year. No one wants that life. Um, so are, are your results desirable? Can a buyer duplicate them? And can you document them? Those are, that's it, Corey. Those are the three questions that we focus on when we help a small business owner try to figure out if they've got a business they can sell. And again, back to, to my personal experience with it, um, those are the questions I had to ask. And the way they get applied is goofy, right? So we talk about whether or not a buyer can duplicate your results. And you ask the question, you know, do you have a systems and do you have a team? Well, my problem was that I was one of those guys that couldn't sit in the business and not, not tinker, right? I, I, I had to, if I was sitting in the office, people knew that I was going to participate, and the reality for me is that that participation started to cause more problems than solutions. And so I hired professional management, but that wasn't enough. I had to do that and then escape to a satellite office 50 miles away that I set up exclusively so I had some place to go sit during the day. That allowed me to strategically engage with the management team, but not be there on site because I didn't know how to be there on site and not be the boss. <laughs> you know what, Mike? Let me just jump in here because it's so great that you said that and that you were willing, that you had the self-awareness and willingness to make that move because a lot of people don't. And I, I can't tell you how many times I have seen, um, you know, like it's so classic. Uh, and when you get to the point where, you have a good team and they are happier when you're not in the office yeah. than when you are, right? Um, and it's not because they don't like you necessarily, whatever, because it's, but it's all the things that you are talking about now, that is a signal that something has to change, whether it's getting a satellite office, whether it's, uh, you know, selling the company, whether it's, uh, you know, whatever it is. I remember I had a conversation once with, with, uh, with Vern Harnish, uh, you know, who's uh, written many, many books and has, um, uh, including Rockefeller Habits and has Scaling Up and, you know, and, and, and he moved to Barcelona, right? His company was U.S.-based. He moved to Barcelona. And, and when, you know, I asked him, why did you move to Barcelona? He said, well, you know, I could tell you that, you know, we were interested in being there and my family and whatever. But the, the real reason was I had to get far enough away from my office and my team so that they could operate without me interfering with them. 
Absolutely. It's it's terribly embarrassing for me to say it out loud. But, you know, it was that it was that self-realization that I am the problem, but I'm also the only solution. Right. And so it's the willingness to take a step back. And the funny thing about that, from my perspective, is it's it's so simple. Right. It's such an easy solution. But there's so much wrapped up in it when you look at the ego involved with a business owner who built the business and is running it. And, and so many elements come into play when you look at that. All I had to do is not be there. So, yeah, I mean, that again, that's an example for me of a, of a very pragmatic, simple reality that allowed me to achieve that goal of creating results that a buyer could duplicate, right? Because if I had to be there for stuff to work the way it works, how can someone buy the business? Right. So that's a, that's a great example. What are some of the other uh, steps that businesses can take? Well, you know, we we, we talk a lot about uh, um, building systems. Again, there's nothing uh, earth shattering there. We talk about E-Myth. We talk those, those statements have been around. One of the things we strongly encourage uh, businesses that we coach to do is start simple. It's, it's not about, I mean, we live in a world where I can get an app that will do 500 things for me, but sometimes it's about putting a sign on the door that says, do these three things before you leave. Um, any of the, anything that starts to take knowledge out of your head as the owner and puts it at a place where someone else can duplicate, um, it's an important step. And again, Corey, I am not an M&A expert. I have no intention or desire to be an M&A expert because there's a lot of those resources out there. What, what, what need we recognized was the fact that the translation between the complexity of the industry and its ability to speak to that small business owner, uh, the, the gap there is huge. I, the example we use, the analogy I use, if, if you and I go to a doctor and we ask the doc, what, what do I need to do? If I want to live longer and be healthier, knowing nothing about me, we all know the answer we're going to get, right? They're going to say, eat right and exercise. Where's the eat right and exercise of this industry? Where is the the information that says to that small business owner, if you don't get these things right, don't bother with the complexity. If you don't walk through the door with these basics in mind, don't assume that you're going to sell your business. And the numbers on that are are terrifying. I mean, I'm sympathetic to the small business owners, but I read statistics that say 70% of small business owners intend to sell their business and use the proceeds to fund their retirement. Never more than 20% of small business owners sell. There's a massive gap of people who are setting up a financial nightmare for themselves because they believe something in the space that simply isn't true. No, no question about that. That's a huge gap. And then, you know, the other gap that you identified that Exit Oasis and your, you and your team are filling, which is great, is that gap. You know, like you said, there's a lot of M&A professionals out there, whether that's on the investment banking side, frankly, what I do on the legal side, uh, you know, financial and accounting people. Um, but when somebody goes to sell a business, the far majority of them are going to hear certainly from, let's, uh, let's say, an investment banker or, or even a business broker that I can't help you. Right. So, you know, what you, so yes, once you get to the point where you're uh, at, at a point where those people can help you, there's plenty of resources there. What I hear is that you are taking all of the majority of those businesses who are going to hear, I can't help you. 
and helping them figure out how they can get to the point where the other professionals in the M&A space will be able to help them. It, it's so funny you, you mentioned that, Corey. I have had a lot of pushback from people in this space who tell me, number one, that we need to charge way more for our service, that we should charge for our content. Our content is free on the site. Our email is free on the site. And they keep pushing and saying, well, that's the only way you're going to be attractive and show perceived value to the business, dot, dot, dot. And the business that they're targeting there is that 10 million revenue, 1.2 EBITDA, a uh, business that everyone and their mother in the M&A industry is getting in a long line to try to serve. But I talk to my broker connections and I say, what percentage of prospects that you talk to are potentially sellable? And consistently, I get numbers like 10%, 7%, 5%, which means that 90, 95% of the small businesses that are out there are unsellable. Hey, they get the brush off that I did. Go fix this. Come back and talk to me in 24 months. Well, can you fix it for me? Sure, 400 bucks an hour. Well, I'm not making any money. That's why you don't want to sell my business. So where do I get the 400 bucks an hour to have you help me? It's a catch-22 for that small business owner. And the need is massive. Yeah, I def, you know, as you can tell, I definitely see the gap because I see it all the time you know, with, uh, with my clients. You know, we have clients that range from very you know, big companies, but down to a lot of entrepreneurial and smaller businesses. And, you know, that, you know, if you think about it, uh, it that, you know, 85 to 95% of the businesses that the M&A professional community is not interested in yet, uh, compared with the stat of 70% of the people say they want to sell their business, you know, that's a huge gap. Absolutely. And I, you know, as I look at, at, at your podcast and the targeted topic, if people want to do more deals, what we need is more viable businesses. Right. We, we, if, if we truly want to grow that way, let's change that percentage and let's get a slightly higher number that have actually achieved a level of transferable value. Then let's see how many deals we can get done. Yeah. So I, let me ask you a question because I, I get like, I, it totally makes sense to me, right? You got to have the team in place. You got to have the process in place. You got to uh, have the business be able to run without you. And you mentioned it a little bit before you mentioned the, you know, the conversation of ego and, and having a business owner remove themselves, how that comes up. You know, what I find is, listen, when you work with smaller businesses, the businesses are much more of a reflection of the founder of founders than, you know, very large companies. Um, and uh, in my experience, in various aspects of what they do, uh, it's often their own limiting beliefs, personality, personal issues <laughs> that affect the business. So I, I'd love you to, you know, because it's, it's great to say we're going to put processes in place and we're going to, you know, uh, have results that people care about. Uh, but tell me what you uh, experienced yourself because you've been through it and what you've run into in dealing with other people in terms of what gets in the way from a personal you know, personality uh, and emotional and, you know, belief point of view for these entrepreneurs sometimes? Oh, that's a great question. It's a, uh, you know, as, as you pointed out, we, uh, we engage our businesses and they become an extension of us. And, you know, it's interesting. There's, um, there's, there's different uh, proofs out there that say that the closer we are connected to something, that the higher value we place on it. So the disconnection between what I think my business is worth and what it's actually worth is kind of built into our systems. Um, that, it, it's an interesting thing for me 
as I reflect back on my own journey, because I, I, I would talk to consultants, I would talk to professionals in this industry, and they would talk about things that I was doing that I had to stop doing. And let's take a real simple example. I talked earlier, bragged on it a little bit about the, you know, the 12, 14, 18 hour days when we got started, right? Obviously created a business that was entirely dependent on me and that extra effort. And then you go and you talk to a professional who says, well, gee, the business has to be less dependent on you. But they never seem to acknowledge the fact that the only reason your business grew through that previous period is because you were willing to do it. The, the hardest part, I think, for the, the small business owner is coming to the realization that real, important, tangible things that they had to do to get their business to where it is are things that they have to stop doing if they're going to get their business to the, to the place they want it to go. And the, and the thing about this is, is the only person, that's not, the, that's not true, not the only person, the main person who benefits from building a sellable business is the owner, right? No one's going to come through your office door and slam their hand on your desk and say, you got to fix this business so you're able to sell it. They'll do it about a hundred other topic. Bill's still being a jerk. The water fountain's not working. The lights, I mean, everyone, every problem in your business has an advocate except this one. And that's why it's about that business owner taking that step back and saying to themselves, I want to leave someday. And that, that someday is the hardest part, right? Because when we sat down and we looked at undertaking this endeavor, we recognized that the single biggest problem we were going to have is the question. And it, Corey, you tell me the answer to this question. How do you sell medicine to people who don't know they're sick? Yeah, you got it. I mean, you're talking about creating a market, uh, creating awareness, which is the toughest thing to do, right? Amen. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really about helping that business owner recognize that their business has to reach ready to sell before they reach want to sell. Because, and I mean, you, you know this better than I do. Uh, what, what are the things that trigger a sale? It, it's not the, it's almost never the strategic execution of a seven-year timeline that finally reached the, the jumping off point, right? It's that I'm not staying in this cold weather anymore. I got to get out of here. I'm going to sell this business. It's the divorce. It's the illness. It's, it's those very human things that don't care whether or not your business is ready for sale. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, and I'm fascinated by the, uh, you know, you bring, out a, bring up a really good sort of um, distinction and turning point that entrepreneurs have, which is that, you know, listen, I, I remember when I started, you know, my law firm, right? I, I did the same thing. I mean, I, I was hustling like crazy. I built a business from nothing. I was at every networking event there was. I was working, you know, day and night, uh, even when I didn't have clients just to get clients. And then when I had clients, I was handling it myself, right? I mean, th there is a stage where that's appropriate. But, you know, there's, there's a, a saying that I, that I love and I repeat to entrepreneurs all the time and frankly to myself, which is that concept of, you know, what got you here won't get you there by definition, because if it would have gotten you there, you'd be there already, right? So, um, so you always have to, you know, th this need to, frankly, almost totally blow up certain significant ways of being, things you do, sometimes even, you know, who's on the team, um, because they, they're not able to, you know, grow as the business grows. And it's a tough thing for business owners to do. But 
if you remember that what got you, you know, here won't get you there, you know, you have to make significant changes at various points of the journey. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then reminding yourself on a regular basis of these things that you've decided, right? I mean, that's why our model is part of what it is, is just that weekly drip to say, listen, Corey, you've talked about, you've thought about, you're interested in selling the law firm one day. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about, right? It's that constant drip to compete with the avalanche of uh, other problems that get presented to you as the owner. And, and again, I, one of the things that, that we try to focus on is the fact that I don't care if you sell your business, right? That's not what this is about. I'm not a broker. I'm not an M&A guy. I'm not taking 10% of your deal. If you fix this business, if you change this business, I mean, we've, we've heard the phrase how many times that that's the best business to own is one that you can sell, right? Because these key elements are in place there. But how does that translate to the small business owner um, who is not an attractive target to the M&A professional, to the valuation professional, to the exit planner, right? Exit plans are great. I'm going to write a check for five grand when my um, seller's discretionary earnings for the year was 15? Probably not, right? It, it, there's, there's a gap there, but that doesn't mean that those businesses aren't sellable with distinct changes. Again, I lived that. Um, and 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 have done it subsequently from that. I sold the first two business, or I sold the first two businesses. I worked for a year as a broker, learned a ton, realized that wasn't for me, and then bought and sold two other businesses, putting these principles into practice. That recognizing that there are things that make a business more sellable. Mike, listen, we can, I feel like we could talk forever, right? There's so much in this topic. But, uh, you know, at least on this podcast, and, you know, we maybe we'll do one in the future, we're sort of coming to the end here. So what I want to do is I, I want to give you an opportunity before I ask you my final question uh, to let people know where uh, they can find out more information, where they can reach you, because I'm sure based upon what they've heard so far, they're going to want to know more about what you do. I appreciate that, Corey. Uh, ExitOasis.com is the website. If there's one step I would encourage you to take as a small business owner, sign up for the free e-newsletter that's there. It's not a marketing piece. All we do is curate and create content designed to help small business owners learn to leave. That's, that's our phrase. I want you to know how to leave your business when you want, the way you want. That's To me, that's the key step. That's, the, that's that drip, drip, drip that comes into your brain as the business owner and says, someday I'm going to want to leave. What do I need to be ready? So listen, uh, Fueling Podcast listeners, I really recommend that you do that. I mean, uh, uh, even if you never sell your business, the kind of things that you will learn from that will make your business better, less dependent upon you, uh, and uh, have you run a better business. And then also obviously set it up if ever you choose to or need to sell it. So definitely check out uh, Mike's uh, content uh, there. So, Mike, my final question that I always ask on the podcast, uh, you know, authenticity for me is a huge, huge value. Uh, my you know, book is called Authentic Negotiating for a reason. And for me, authenticity is not just about external morals or integrity, although obviously integrity is crucial. Um, it's really about alignment. It's really about no self-awareness. We discussed, we alluded to this a little bit before. It's really about self-awareness, self-knowledge, and uh, aligning our business decisions, uh, whether it's doing a deal, not doing a deal, whether it's the way we run our business, whether it's what business we're in, to our uh, internal truth and values. And um, I'd love to hear, I always want to give people tips on 
how different business owners do that. So what do you do to make sure that your business decisions and the way you advise other clients, but also internally in your own business and life are authentic to who you are? Wow, that's a great question. Such a huge question. I'm, I'm flashing back to the earlier parts of our conversation. I, I remember starting and growing and building that business and my sole motivation was, please God, don't let it fail. Um, that's not a place of authenticity. That's a place of terror. Um, I, I think part of it for me was the uh, evolution of, of learning where you make mistakes and you start to see success build from what you've learned. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm far from the most successful guy in the world, but I feel like I've been able to accomplish certain things that give me the confidence to be able to say, this is how I'm going to approach this. If I need to change two steps down the way because I've learned something different, so be it. Um, how do how do you tell how do you tell somebody? I guess you know it, to to use your word, it's about trusting the value of your own authentic journey and uh, being willing to engage that next step without dismissing the steps you've taken up to that point. I love that. Uh, phrase you used of trusting the value of your own authentic journey. I love that. Mike, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been great. My pleasure. My pleasure. And thank you, Fueling Deals listeners, for tuning in. Remember, there's only one difference between companies that grow inorganically and those that don't. And it's unrelated to size, amount of capital, or any other factor, other than that owners and executives of companies that do deals make a decision to do deals, and then they take action. Well, it's time to refuel. So until next week, Corey Kupfer signing out. Thank you again for tuning in. Be sure to leave Fueling Deals a rating and review on iTunes and Google. Check out all our episodes at fuelingdeals.com to find out more resources to accelerate your business growth.